Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For Syria now, with the war, it's not a safe country to go there. The war, it's so long, nobody imagined that it will take this long time. I feel like I really wanted to see Syria. Yeah. But now it's too late. I see all these white people going there all the time. How come they get to go back to our homelands and enjoy our countries, but we're not allowed to go and enjoy our own countries? Kia ora, we're your hosts, Julie and Sarade. We travelled around Aotearoa with our soundy Joey meeting immigrant Fano, listening to stories and discovering what is said or not said between different generations. These stories warmed our hearts and broke our hearts. And over this series, we invite you two to listen in on conversations with my immigrant parents. In this episode, we drove to Kirikiriroa to spend some time with the Aref Fano. Dad Mahmoud and Mum Mesa have six kids, one son and five daughters. They are Abdul Salam, Miriam, Arij, Shema, Rana and Mira. The four oldest kids have moved out with the youngest two teenagers still at home. In this conversation, we hear from middle child Shema, who currently works in Te Whanganui Atara as a human rights advisor, and she made her way back to Kirikiriroa for this conversation. Her mum, Mesa, works for the Red Cross. She also volunteers in multiple capacities, supporting the local Arab community in Waikato. Mahmoud recently retired just before the first COVID lockdown in Aotearoa. Before that, he was mostly living in Abu Dhabi, working to support his family here. Shema was two when the family officially immigrated here. They moved between Aotearoa and the UAE for several years while Shema was growing up. And while the family is from the Emirates, Shema explains their whakapapa a bit more in her introduction of her parents. My uh, mum's name is Mesa Sheikh Al-Ard, so her mum's Egyptian and her dad is from Syria. My father's name is Mahmoud Abdesalam Arif, and he is from Iraq. His mum is from Turkey, but his father's from Iraq. Both of them met in Abu Dhabi United Arab Emirates. Both of them were working at the same hospital at that time. As you can tell, me and my mum look exactly alike, but um, our personalities can be quite different. She's experienced quite a lot in her life, and so I think she doesn't like to show her vulnerabilities because she wants to kind of be that rock for the entire whanau. My dad, I think I get a lot of my humour from my dad, to be honest. He is very humorous. He likes to trip me up every five seconds when we're walking, so I'm really guarded now. (laughs) Shayma, she's my third daughter and she's fourth from all my kids. Not like the other kids. She's shouting for the word. Really, she's always, she have her um, voice. Our community, we need some women, leader women like Shayma. Uh, I'm really proud of her. She's very nice, adorable. When she comes, she turned the house a little funny. Actually, we needed in the family one like Shema. Okay, question. When was the moment in your lives when you guys decided and uh, we can't continue here in the UAE and we should actually try to immigrate somewhere else for the family? Uh, the moment was at 
1990. The war. The war, the yes. second Gulf War. The first Gulf War was with Iran, Iraq War mm-hmm. for eight years. Yeah. That's, uh, it took us eight years from 1980 to 1988. But things was okay after, but then comes the second Gulf War. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was very difficult for Iraqis to stay there in the Gulf because all the the allies are against mm. Iraq. Mm. Our passport was the worst passport at that time and till now. <laughs> so if you want to go anywhere, they tell, what's your nationality? Yes, Iraqi, no, no visa, no, no. Three or four countries, they don't need visa for mm-hmm. us to go. So I decided at that time to do the immigration. I would prepare all my papers and I submit my papers um, to many countries, mm. Canada, US, Australia, and New Zealand. Mm. The process in New Zealand goes too fast. It took about just four months. They replied to me and just go and do so, and the papers were finished. So I thought this is a sign from God to go to this country. But the funny things, that it was the fastest to come here as a skilled immigrant, mm. like for dad, because he's a, you have, he's a, a specialist dermatologist and so on. It didn't take time. But in the same time, they, when he arrived here, they said, sorry, you can't work because... Oh, yeah. oh, that's, that's, what, that's what you call it. I'm not regretting coming here, but I'm disappointed. Yeah. Because when I applied and submit my papers, I applied and submit as a physician. Mm. And I'm a specialist with a postgraduate. There was at that time something called the point system. Yeah, yeah. And I took my points according to my qualifications. Mm. But unfortunately, when I came here, I said, no, you cannot work because we have a system and the system is very tough. And I have to go back from the beginning as a general practitioner, not as a specialist. And I met the head of department in Auckland, and he told me, and still remember, it was an interview, this is a long, long marathon. If I would in the same position, would I would not do it. I told him, I will not do it, of course, going from scratch. I'm happy that you are here and we are here. You are safe. It's a respectable place. But for that point, particularly, I'm disappointed. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. That actually, it's a lot of people have gone through that I've heard, of like yeah. being completely specialized and skilled in the Middle it's East. And- yeah, because I thought at that time it's a mutual thing, that I need to come here for some reasons. And they also need us for our skills. Yeah. They didn't accept. Anyhow, so this is uh, how yeah. it goes. <laughs> So frustrating. I mean, it's sad that there has to be a sacrifice, I guess. Why why couldn't we have the both? I'm 63. Mm. With all this experience, I can do a lot for the mm. country. So what what I'm going to do now? Yeah. I cannot do any job after 33 years of working in my field. I cannot do anything. Mm. Except in my field. We have a garden. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> This is so unfair. Yeah. It's so counterintuitive. And it feels like it's just 
fueling all these crappy arguments. The anti-immigration arguments? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so hypocritical. Like, I really appreciate how he points out the hypocrisy that we're all about wanting skilled migrants, Mm. but then we don't actually utilise the skills that migrants bring. And why make people jump through so many hoops when they are literally qualified and have been doing their job for such a long time? Oh, it's very upsetting. Yeah. Like, disappointment is such a mild response and... It just reinforces that narrative that we still need to be the grateful refugee, grateful immigrant, that we can't complain about this crappy situation, even though it could be decades of our lives that's affected. Yeah, and Shama points it out when she says, why can't we have both? Like, why did we need to sacrifice one part of it? Yeah. Long time now, 20 years I didn't go to Syria. Or Iraq, both. No, Iraq, yeah, it's worse. after the war, it was impossible to. But mm-hmm. still, yani, we feel, I feel that we mm-hmm. still keep the tradition, our cultures, you know. We still have the Arab culture in our home. In We're our home. practicing. But the emphasis is on this, the Iraqi and Syrian side. We oh. barely, we barely um, talk about the Turkish and Egyptian side. Because I, I feel I'm Syrian. And this is my blood that, mm. you know, okay, I am half Egyptian, but I can't feel that I'm Egyptian. Mm. So I feel Syrian more. That's why you feel it more. And Baba, the same. I also feel Egyptian somehow because oh I God. studied I studied in Egypt. Well, you can still go visit Egypt, though it's not as difficult as it was with the other countries. Yeah. Yeah. It was 2012. When, we, when I was in high school, you went to Sharm el-Sheikh. But that was the last time you went to Egypt. I wanted to go, but your mother refused. Ooh, girl. <laughs> she said, uh, I cannot trust Egyptian females. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> so to give a bit of context for this next section... Shema's granddad, or Mahmoud's dad, was actually a former president of Iraq, and that affects how the family is able or not able to travel back to the country. The thing that I was told, and I don't know if you guys are saying that because you don't want us to go back, because you're worried, or if it's true, but you said that because our names on the New Zealand passport are like the full name, Shema Mahmoud Abdussalam Arif, that that makes it difficult to go back to Iraq. Of course, <clears throat> your uh, grandparent name is very popular and well-known. And because of your name is an Arabic name, even if you go with a New Zealand passport, they will read the name. They will know you're originally Arab. So if they know you are the granddaughter, uh, you might have... Uh, yeah, it's a safe issue. And trouble. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think that for the rest of our lives, like even if, I, if we change our names on our passport to just... For example, like take off Mahmoud Abdesalam, if we just have Shema Arif, do you think it's still going to be a problem? No, no problem. The problem is with your full name. And if you go in now in these circumstances, because, you know, there is in Iraq now a problem with uh, being Sunni or Shia or being Kurdish or Arab. There is many, many problems there. In in the last uh, years few years, they were killing each other according to the ID. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the situation is very bad there, particularly for you, if you will go there, because they will dig in the past 
you know that many members of our family have been killed there because of uh, their names there. They knew them that they are yeah. from Arab family. Pisses me off so much. Yeah, and I just want to go and visit. Yeah, and for Syria now with the war, you know, it's not a safe country to go there. The war it's so long. We, we did nobody expect that this war it will stay like this is the tenth year for it. Nobody imagined that it will take this long time. I feel like I really wanted to see Syria. Yeah. But it, now it's too late. I see all these white people going there all the time. Like I always see on YouTube all these like Europeans going to Syria and like visiting it even during the war, so-called war. But they're fine and they enjoy it. And I this is what I get really sad about. I say, well, how come they get to go back to our heritage, like our homelands and enjoy our countries, but we're not allowed to go and enjoy our own countries. Both Mesa and Shema wear the hijab, and in this next section, Shema remembers what this decision was like for her. She was very clear that she wanted to get used to wearing the hijab in the UAE, in a Muslim-majority country, to make it easier for when she was back in her country where she was the minority again. Do you remember the story about when I wore the hijab? I was 16. Nobody expected it. I just told mum one day, I said, oh, I think I'm ready to, to wear the hijab, but I think it was like 11 p.m., and I said, I want to change my entire wardrobe. Khalas. Like, I'm ready to wear the hijab now. And mom just found it hilarious because she was like, what the hell's going on right now? Like happy, but at the same time thinking, this girl's crazy. And I even asked you, dad, I said, oh, what do you think about me wearing the hijab? And you just like smiled and said, oh, we're not used, like, I'm not used to seeing you wearing the hijab because it was literally so sudden. This is which, which year? 20, 2012, a month or two before my graduation. I knew that it was a decision that if I put it on, I probably won't take it off. It's going to become a part of my identity. In Emirat, it was fine. And then a few months later in October, I came back to Auckland and stayed at Miriam's house for a few months. And to be honest, that experience was... Too much? Yeah, because I was 17. Oh. First time in New Zealand as a hijabi, because before that I never wore the hijab in New Zealand. And I remember the first weird experience I had was at ASB mm. when I was first opening my bank account. And Miriam said to me, I'll just go do it. Like, it's fine. Like your first first thing, like experience as an adult, you know, opening your bank account. And so I was in St. Luke's or something. And Aslan and I hate being in big crowds. There's like lines and lines of people. And I remember I always was carrying my passport with me because I'm always worried that if anybody asks me for my identity, I stood there and then she, this lady was like telling me, oh, I said, I want to open a bank account. She said, okay, show me your um, student visa. And then I said, oh, I don't have a student visa. I'm a New Zealand citizen. And she said, show me your student visa. Show me your student visa. And I said, no, no, I'm a New Zealand citizen. And she said, so what, your work visa? Show me your work visa. And then I literally pulled out my passport. Alhamdulillah, I had it on me. I pulled out my passport and I put it on the counter. And I said, oh, I'm a New Zealand citizen. Like, I'm not, I don't have a visa. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. And then her entire demeanor changed at that time. She's like, oh my God. It's like, sorry. Um, but like, <laughs> after a while, I was honestly so ashamed because I thought to myself, I expect it elsewhere, like maybe if I'm in America or something like that, but not here in New Zealand where it's considered home for me. So I think on this podcast, we don't want to focus the family's experiences to only revolve around racism. But then you hear stories like this and you know that there's just like no escaping it because it is such a defining experience of the immigrant of colour experience. Mm. Even the fact that Shema is preemptively carrying her passport around with her in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it does make it like 
exponentially worse when you're dealing with the trifecta of racism, xenophobia and Islamophobia, like when you visibly stand out so much as other. I don't think you and I have that experience opening a bank account. Being visibly Muslim just changes your experience of a country so much because people have so many terrible, ignorant ideas about what your faith means. Shema also shared what it was like when her sister decided to wear a hijab. I would never take off my hijab. I do feel like it is a part of my identity. Like, I think the cool thing as well was seeing, like, Rana, for example. Rana's journey to wearing the hijab, because she wore it two, three weeks. Did she wear it, like, two, three weeks before the 15th of March attacks? And I remember I called her a day after the 15th of March attacks, and I said to her, oh, if you want to take off your hijab, like... Nobody would judge you for it. And like, are you okay? How do you feel wearing the hijab? She was strong at that time, huh? In here? But I know. Because she was my age when she wore the hijab as well. Like she was 17 and she just still, yeah, she was like, no, I'm so proud to be wearing it. And I was proud when I first wore it a few weeks ago. And I'm even like more proud to be wearing it now after the attacks. It's not like it hasn't crossed my mind to take off the hijab. Like it's it comes to my mind, but it's not like I'm going to act upon it, if you know what I mean. It's just like, oh, how would my life be if I was white passing again? Like, how would my life be if people didn't know I was Muslim? How would it feel to be part of the majority and not worry about things like this? It's a challenge, and we know that, especially, you know, in not Muslim country. But this is part of our life, and from the beginning we know that it is. it will not be easy. Yeah. Just we need the strength inside us, you know, just to keep it. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a there should be more of a focus on, you know, what communities are supporting their young ones to actually embrace wearing the hijab. It's not actually something to be ashamed of. It's not a source of oppression or shame. Any. Anyways, that's my journey. Me being emotional about the hijab. I remember, I remember when uh, after 9/11, yeah. there was a big deal, and I. I think when uh, your mom used to come from New Zealand to Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. and I suggest for her to put a hat. Instead of a hijab? No, put the hijab and the hat. <laughs> How is that going to change it? Yeah, and she was putting and she was looking very nice. <laughs> and she was, <laughs> nobody was. Just, yeah, yeah in that time, it was difficult. A lot of women... Time. You told me that people were telling you, and you should probably take off the hijab, but yeah, you chose but not to. I, actually, I didn't feel it. I saw many of my friends, they changed the hijab to hat. But for me, I couldn't feel the discrimination in that time about the hijab. But uh, some people, they really have a very bad time with attacking and names and so on. So they were forced to put, like, something substitute of the hijab. One time, you know in the uh, white buffet that we have? Mm. The one that was in And I remember I opened the, the cupboards at the bottom and there was a bunch of albums and pictures. And then I saw a black and white photo of what I thought at that time was you. with another woman in a wedding dress and I thought to myself what the hell is this like is dad I thought to myself was dad married before mom like and why does mom have it (laughs) like at home like why is she holding on to this memory (laughs) um and so I took it out and I said mama 
like was I, th- I think I even said it like in a whisper, like in a whisper, because as if you know, I don't want Dad to hear. No, what's this photo of Dad with this other woman? Like, cause she was he married? Is he married to someone else? And then Mom at that point explained to me like Dad has a or had a twin. But yeah, you kind of explained the story that this is Dad's twin and he passed away and this and this and that. And I was just bewildered. Like I couldn't believe that. There was, I couldn't believe it. I don't know. It's just weird. I never knew that our family had, I can't explain it. Like dad, but it's not dad. It's somebody who looks exactly like him, but not him. And we are the last, me and uh, my brother, Muhammad. Uh, we are uh, what so-called too identical. And sometimes when I look to myself to the mirror, I see him. I have a mole hair and that's the only one they can distinguish us. Even when they come to with us as relatives, they used to turn my neck like this <laughs> and see this small here. And then, they, oh, this is Mahmoud, this, that's Mahmoud. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, he passed away early. Uh, and when he passed away, he was having a baby of three months old. And that was in 1983. Uh, after... Uh, in 1990, when we went to Iraq for the first visit. And the last. And the last visit. Uh, and uh, I never saw her before, his wife. Mm. And I called her and I told her that uh, I'm going to come and visit. I still remember when I talked to her by the phone, she took about a minute. She thought you were her. It was the same voice. And she was dead shocked. Oh, Dad, that's so sad. Yeah. So, Auntie, you haven't seen him since 1983? Like, was, or like, even before 1983? Mean, who's No. I didn't see him. Since what year? I left uh, in 1974 or 75. How old were you at that time? 18, 19? Like... I finished high school and I went to Egypt. Mm. Since that time, I didn't see him because he didn't go back to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, this party which was ruling Iraq they didn't allow him to leave. They allowed me to leave. They said if one is leaving, the other should stay because of the political things that if I will go out and do something, they have one there. And then the Iraq-Iran war and he died. He was in the front lines. He is a chemical engineer. He is a chemical engineer. And he shouldn't be in the front line. And he was having also very bad psychological issues, being in the front lines. And anyhow, it was a very tragic story. That's not that good. Yeah. He was 23 years old when he passed away. Oh, my God, this is so sad. I don't even know any of this. During Iraq, uh, Iran war, eight years, many young they died in that in the war. war yes. It was a very tragic war from both sides, Iraq and Iran. Mm-hmm. It was sick and that finished and then another war happened and then another war happened. It was just like constantly Yeah, yeah that's war. why I'm telling you how I, try, I decided to 
give you a good opportunity, not like ours. I'm really learning that grief is such a journey and I was not at all surprised that Mahmoud got emotional when he was talking about his brother here. And I think I used to be really shocked when my mum would still cry about her dad who died when she was 19. But now that I've experienced grief, I know that it can feel very close to you, very unexpectedly, and like it happened yesterday. I think grief is a different journey for lots of people. Mm. I don't know. I think I process grief differently to how I think I should process grief. And then I feel bad about that. So I don't want to determine that there's, there's one way to do it, which is not what you're saying at all. Just that the past is not always the past. Mm-hmm. And especially that grief can be something that doesn't have this trajectory of like getting easier over time. It can go up and down mm. over time. Yeah. Yeah. In this next section, the family discuss how their experience as Arab immigrants to this country might be different to those who arrive here without a choice, who come here as refugees. I think my working with the refugee and uh, feeling that they are start to be isolated from the community with the language barrier and so on, it was essential to make like Arab community because, okay, we have the Muslim community. But with the, the language barrier, also they can't fit. They, it's hard for them to be completely feel fit with this community. So it was essential to make Arab community so they feel that there is people who share with them the language, the culture and so on. Since we're here in exile, I think we do have to, to build connections with each other because a lot of us come here without extra families. So it's the nuclear family that comes and they don't like the cousins aren't here, the you know extended relatives aren't here. And you see this with the smaller things. When we have like a pregnant woman and she wants to go to the hospital, she don't have mother or someone to support, you know, and she's just calling anyone of her friend just to be with her. She don't need anything just to support, you know. So these small things to feel safe that there is someone with you, understand you, understand oh, one. Especially when they are new here. I get that, but, but I guess like I'm saying, because my experiences have been mainly not with Arabs, I, I tend to not just focus on the Arab community. Whereas had my experiences been different, you can never see Shifan. But for and support will connections are from non, non-Arabs. And so that's why I'm just kind of like, whatever community I can build that's not ethnicity specific, then I will I will try to build that. But don't forget, Shayma, that your English is perfect. These people that they are coming most of them, not the immigrants, I'm talking about especially the refugee, the language is so big barrier for them. How they will ask to support or ask anything from people who can't understand their language, you know? Here in New Zealand, the word refugee was brought up every now and then, but I thought to myself before I knew what it was, that it might be something negative. Their refugee is sort of like a not a, maybe a stigma I don't know why but but it was there when I was in high school the Arab Spring happened and it was really really intense and then the civil war in Syria happened we already had from the Iraqi side a lot of refugees obviously in New Zealand but then it became also from my Syrian side all, all my people now were becoming refugees again we had to start understanding more about it and being more 
you know, more educated about what is an asylum seeker, what is a refugee and how we have to play our part to actually be helping our people as well. Because it's a privilege not to think about it. It really is. But in the same time, sometimes to use the word refugee and keep it, you know, all the time, refugee or former refugee, as we want to differentiate these people for all their life as a refugee, when they come here, they have like a permanent residence. So they will be like the immigrant. They will be the same as us. So to keep these people in this frame, the label as yeah. a refugee all think, their life, it's not fair. And I feel yeah. it's why? It's why? not fair, but that's not up to us to decide. It's up to them to decide. We shouldn't other them. We shouldn't call people former refugees if on a daily basis or on a constant basis. But I do know people who are former refugees who say it is a massive part of my identity. And every time I introduce myself, I want to say I am a former refugee. Why? Because it's something big in their life. They actually, their families have gone through so much that they weren't able to decide and plan to come to New Zealand. Their family has had to struggle so much and they came as refugees because they had to flee such a significant event. So they say, yes, I'm proud because my parents didn't come as immigrants. They came as refugees. No, I'm not saying to be not proud. But they want to label themselves as former refugees, not refugees. I'm afraid that we as a community, we are labeling these people. Yeah, To that's be a refugee. Problem. You are a refugee and you will live all your life as a refugee. Yeah. The immigrant also, they have their own struggling. No immigrant come because he want just, you know, to have a luxury life. They have their struggling in their way and they come here like the refugee they have their struggling and they find a country to come and settle down so immigrants no sometimes they just want to know i'm talking at the people reasons. of color and i know that we are different yeah that's true and it's not a comparison of struggles like. until now we have this differentiation that we we don't talk about it it's the hidden stuff but we know that there is also differentiation in the treatment between the immigrant and the refugee. I think um, apart from just the Arab, the whole concept of like Arab refugees and Arab immigrants, when we decided to come to Aotearoa as immigrants at that time, things maybe were a little bit less intense in our homelands, for example. But unfortunately, the more years progress, the more we are finding that obviously a war is happening in this country, in that country. And even though we haven't come through the refugee process, we have Fano who are becoming refugees because of wars in the homeland. And that is a point of conflict between a lot of immigrants and, and refugee communities. It's not anybody's fault, literally. It's not immigrant communities' fault. It's not refugee communities' fault. It's nobody's fault but the structure that we're currently living in. immigration system it's just like arbitrary like it's just made up rules and it's made up by a colonial government with no input from Māori not that I'm saying that there is consensus within Te Ao Māori about what immigration should look like but a system of immigration that is based on values of taking care of people for example making sure that families are able to stay together like a values-based immigration system is possible, not a numbers-based immigration system, which is what we have now, which is all about stats and, and economic value. deciding someone's worth based on their economic value. And the idea of deciding someone's worth is so messed up in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Aren't all rules around immigration arbitrary? Borders aren't real. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand's kind of because it's an island. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I feel like even when we have, like, a so-called progressive government we still are keeping families apart 
and only allowing the wealthy to reunite with their families, having such a low cap for refugee numbers. That's so heartbreaking for what Shame is describing when you have your family members who are refugees now and you don't know how to support them because the system won't let you. In this next section, Shema asks her parents very honestly why they had so many children. I am actually curious. I believe, and we've had this conversation before, I believe that three, four children were enough for you guys. Uh... I think it should have stopped at Edige or it stopped at me. Not because I'm the best, but like I think it should have. I think it should not. I think it should have stopped it at me. I think I'm a handful, mashallah. All of a sudden, like an eight, seven year age gap between Rena and I, and you decided to have these two younger ones. It is a blessing, but I'm just like, why? Genuine question. Okay, I'll make it softer. Why? <laughs> First, I like the big family. I love big family. You came from a small family. Yeah, that's why oh, I like it. it. I dug myself a hole in that one. So I love the big family. Dad also the same. Dad, you like a big family? Uh, I like big family. And also, I cannot imagine time without a kid, a baby. Yeah, That's baby. why I love cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, nice segue. I love kittens. <laughs> When I don't have a baby, I go and bring kitten. I was at the time having 12 kittens. (laughs) Can you imagine our life without your sisters now? Can I say, like technically speaking, you guys would have saved so much money. This is money wise, and we don't care about money. The second thing is, you guys could have, you guys would have been on a cruise ship somewhere around the world. Did you hear something called the power of choice? Uh, this is our choice, to have six and maybe eight. And I'm not regretted, really. And in, I enjoy it for the max. Oh, my God. We're so different. <laughs> Honest to God, Mom. I love children. Alhamdulillah. So God bless us with five girls, one boy. And you are all amazing. We enjoy you all. Especially girls. One thing that you keep talking about is like you always say, oh, I can't wait till I see you having kids. Uh, I can't wait till- I've hyped you up for the both of you guys up. I've already I'm trying to prepare you guys mentally to know that the next grandchild you will have will be from your three oldest or two youngest. You know, in one of my session, life course session, I write a big story mm-hmm. about me with father and your ch- uh, sisters and and one of the of that it was for you and you are coming with your husband. You were pregnant and you have one little in your hands. I believe that what I want and what I dream, it will be coming true. So whatever you said, God, he will give me what I want, not what you want. And issue of Baba, I, this is, this is, no, no, this is the conversation I've already had with mom. Mom, you can't, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to change my mind. My idea. You had this conversation before? Yeah. I've made up my mind and I don't want to have my bio, any biological children. I don't want to have biological children. And if anything, I'm going to, inshallah, either go through the process of adopting or in permanent um, caregiving. And mom thinks that that is very strange for me not to want to have children. Why would I bring another child into Maybe this Maybe you are passing in uh, some it's not period a of time. It's not a phase, <laughs> because I, I've been thinking about this for since I was like 2021 20, or something. I don't want to have children. No, you never Should know. Because you never met the right person. If you find one unlike your father, oh my god, you cannot resist. 
<laughs> we have six kids, every one of them, alhamdulillah, have good education, good career, good life. So why we don't bring... But it wasn't that easy, mom. Did I complain? I complain. You complain as you want. <laughs> I complain. I don't know my... For yourself, don't make seven or eight, one or two enough. Okay, but there are so many children in our community out there that don't have family, they don't have parents being put in the system and they have nobody to take care of them. Okay, you I'm against suffer. you, okay? No, you're not because if I... Because I'm, against, this, I'm against you. We've had this conversation. If I end up adopting, you guys would be accepting of my child. You just were talking about us and them with the refugee thing. You wouldn't treat my child any differently. What, you're going to treat my little cute as baby uh, like not he's, part, he's not part of the family? I'll agree with you guys on one thing. And if I have a child... A biological child, honest to God, he or she will be the most beautiful out of all the grandchildren. And I admit that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want the rest of the grandchildren to feel competitive, you know, and oh, how are we going to be as cute as Shema's child? I'm giving Miriam's children and Adich's children and Saddam's children and Rana and Mira's children a shot. Because then everybody will be... Please keep this as a record. (laughs) Because next year, if she got married, we'll show her this. (laughs) never gonna happen anytime soon. You don't know. You never know. <laughs> I quite like how Mesa just gives up at some point in this conversation. <laughs> like she knows she <laughs> can't be bothered. And it's quite funny how even though Shama's parents already have grandkids, they're still pushing for more. Like they just can't get enough. I really admire Shama's stand and Shama's decision. Mm. Yeah, I think I feel similarly. I know you, you, love, you want kids. I'm sort of like, I don't need that. But I really respect Shama's deep reasoning that she doesn't want to pass on any intergenerational trauma and she thinks the world sucks. Has enough <laughs> kids as well who need families to yeah. take care of them. Yeah, But that she doesn't want to bring new life into a world that is so broken. Home is family. As long as I have my husband, my children, grandchildren, this is my home. Wherever it is, I don't care about the place as long as they are around me. Yeah, I think there is a proverb, it's an Arabic proverb used to say, wherever the place that you can sleep safely, like a baby, Mm. that's your home. That's your home. So yes, I agree with that. The home when you feel safe, respectable, that's the home. And do you feel New Zealand is home? Hamilton. Oh, specifically. Okay. <laughs> Not Auckland. <laughs> well, that's good to know, though. If you say the closest thing, what's the closest thing to home? I'll say the closest thing I have to home is Aotearoa. Like you said, I can sleep and feel safe and, and comfortable sleeping at night. But I don't think we should settle down for that concept of home. I think home is something far greater than this. It's a place where you can completely feel at peace at. It's a place where you don't have to worry about who you are. You know, you you love and you feel loved. And you just don't have to, to worry. And we're never going to reach that until what well, I believe you is Salah Hattin Jannah. find this place. In this world. In the world. There is a next world. You know, that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. Truthfully, wallah. I feel like there is something far greater. And I can't wait to experience that. We could be just be comfortable here. I already settled for that version in a sense that I've accepted it here, but I don't accept it in the wider context. Uh, yes, this is because in our religion, it says that we are in this life like passengers. Exactly. Somebody says, well, what, what's home to you? 
Home is something that we haven't seen yet, we haven't experienced yet. It's something that we're striving towards so that we can finally experience it, hopefully, in the next life. Wow. We got emotional when we heard this for the first time. And I got emotional again just, just now. now. Again, yeah. I think it's hard to listen to because of how honestly Seamus says that it is not good enough here instead of pretending that it is. Yeah, I think that's really true. And also makes me think about life and death. I'm really scared of death or the idea of not existing. But then hearing someone speak like this, it is what makes me wish I had a strong religion so that I could feel more at peace. She's at peace, is how I interpret that. You probably feel differently. I do feel differently. I actually feel like nothing can be as hard as being alive. And whatever's coming next has to be better. Because this shit is so hard. It's a great way to end the episode and a great way to end the series. So... Ka nui tumihiki a koutou, the Ara family, for showing us kirikiriroa, for letting us be with you and your beautiful whare, for preparing those amazing snack platters and for being we so... Love snacks. We love snacks. And for being so gracious and so humble with your storytelling. So this is the last episode of our second series. Conversations with my immigrant parents. <laughs> How do we feel? We're just trying to, trying to do a little bit of wrap up here. <laughs> trying to... What have we learned? Trying to cap off something that we really can't. I feel like you can pretty much turn the mic on anyone because everyone has lived these rich, vibrant experiences that most of the time we just don't hear because we aren't prioritising immigrant voices here in Aotearoa. I don't know if people are listening to this podcast and they just think that we've found these amazing families, and they are amazing families, but you could talk to so many different people who have gone through the immigrant experience or are a child of an immigrant and you would hear similar incredible stories. Families are so full of love and fear and guilt (laughs) and resentment and admiration Mm -hmm. and need. Like there's so much in that unit, even if the unit is fractured or if part of it is missing like it's still something where there are so many different relationships that are so important we really want to honor how valid and important all sides of that experience Mm. is because um we are limited in how we see the world being able to hear all these different narratives and perspectives makes us more connected to the world Mm. and opens ourselves up unpacks our misconceptions and biases and I just feel like we've been really lucky to have done this for our job. Yeah, yes, I agree. We want to thank you all so much for listening and for sharing this series with your friends, your communities and we hope these stories have touched your lives as much as they have touched ours. Mm, Exactly. You can check out photos and videos of all our families on Facebook at Where Are You From Really, Instagram at Combos With My, and on RNZ's website. Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was created, produced, and directed by Julie Zhu and Saray De Silva. 
Location recording by Joey Siasoko. Studio recording by Jill Eva Craig at The Secret Beehive. And sound edited and mixed by Emmy Pagoni. Our cover image is illustrated by Ngamutani Jones at Miss Memo and designed by Sonia Milford. A huge thanks also to Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell from RNZ Commissioning. Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. He Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.